Happy time change uh, Sunday. Happy spring break Sunday. Uh, we're going to be here for a while, so glad that you are here. Let me, uh, let me also welcome a couple folks from uh, watching online. We got folks here from uh, watching online from New York, Ohio, Oregon, Tennessee, Illinois, Missouri, and a special shout out to Bob and Sharon in Maple Grove, Minnesota. All right, so Bob and Sharon, we're winding down here in the A2A because it was cold, so you're tougher than we are, all right? We love you. Thanks for, thanks for uh, tuning in. And also, uh, if you're part of the Biltmore Church family, here's one of the things about um, a year ago, actually go back two years, the week of COVID, all right? So the Monday night, right behind Right behind over here, we met with about 30 leaders over at Brevard Community Church. And over the course of the next year, through praying and meeting and, and listening and all of that, uh, today is the one-year anniversary of the Biltmore Church Brevard Campus. So put your hands together. I mean, God's done a great work in Transylvania County. All right, so grateful for Tyler Luttrell. Uh, he's campus pastor, his wife, Shalom, and the brand new parents. A lot of great stuff. If you are in Transylvania County, got a church for you. So here's, uh, here's kind of what I want to ask you, and this is a uh, participatory question. How many, raise your hand, if you would, if you have ever seen the movie The Prince's Bride. Just put your hands up loud and proud. All right, very good. All right, if not, you got an assignment sometime this week. It's actually a safe PG movie, The Princess Bride. Princess Bride behind Denzel Washington movies and I Am Legend. Princess Bride is one of one of the better movies of all time. And reason it's really, really good is because it's one of the most quotable movies of all time, correct? I mean, there are so many quotes. Stop rhyming and I mean it. Anybody want a peanut? You know, it's like, we're storming the castle or my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Anybody with me? I mean, you all know that one? It's a lot of them. So there's one line in there, though, that probably went unnoticed for you. And the line, I had not even remembered it. When I, when I heard it, I was like, that's, that's actually it. And it's actually before, and spoiler alert, before Wesley is revealed about who Wesley is and he's talking to Princess Buttercup, I mean, it's, it is true. And he's like, what is it? He, he has this quote in there and he says this. He says, life is pain. Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says different is trying to sell you something. He looks at her in this fairy tale movie and says, life is pain. Anybody who tells you differently is trying to sell you something. What I'm going to tell you, loved one, is the Bible is not a fairy tale, and it's definitely not trying to sell you something, but it is going to show and make no bones about the fact that life definitely has a lot of pain. From cancer to car wrecks, from sickness to slander, you name it, nobody in this room, nobody watching online gets to audit the class of hardship or pain or trials or suffering. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. The question is, what do you do now with the pain in this present world? How do you have hope? How do you, in other words, how do you know that God is good even when life is not? How do you know God is good when life is not? And in our section today, we're going to see what is arguably one of the most famous verses 
Even if you're new to Bible study, you might have like, well, I've kind of heard that or I saw that bedazzled on a t-shirt or I saw that in my grandmom's home in a needlepoint that was framed right there in the entranceway. And it's Romans 8, 28. And it says, we know. It's like, we know something. We know, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. But it's actually, it's actually better than we even think it is. But the whole context of it, it's a great promise. It's a good promise, but the context is a difficult time. And the number one reason people give for stopping to believe, now whether it's the real reason or not, the number one reason people give to say, you know what, I used to be a Christian, or I used to believe, or I used to go to church, or whatever, the number one reason they give for not believing any longer is they can't figure out how can there be a good God and there's a bad world. Comedian Ricky Gervais, who's an atheist, he actually, he said, that's, that's the number one reason. He said, when people ask me, he said, when people ask me if, he ever, if I ever pray, he says, no, why would I ask God to help me find my car keys if he stood by and did nothing during the Holocaust? I mean, that is without a doubt the number one apologetic philosophical question that is out there. Now, we're going to hit it just a little bit today. We'll see part of the answer today. We've talked about it in much more detail in previous messages. But it's not just the big theological philosophical question that's out there. It's also the personal practical question that you have in here. In other words, it, it, it might not be some historical thing that happened years ago. It's what happened in your life right now. It's like, you know what? She called it a day and she called it a divorce. We had a miscarriage. The doctor called and said the cancer is back. The prodigal called and said she wasn't interested in coming home. You're like, what am I supposed to do with that? And the text today actually goes both big and philosophical and theological as well as personal and practical. Because I would, I, one thing I know for sure is there's a bunch of pain at our campuses today. There's a bunch of pain in this room today. And so what we're going to do is we're going to try to figure out and try to look at this text, this amazing text, and figure out, all right, how do I know God is good when life is not? And it is some deep waters, and it's only like 11 or 12 verses. So what I tried to do is like, how do I put this in a way that I can give you some handles on all this amazing scripture that's in here? And so let me give you just two handles today. Handle number one is the first section, and that is this. It's just simply that pain has an expiration date. Whatever that is that's heaviest on your heart, he's gonna talk about, you know what? There is an expiration date on this. It is for now, but it's not forever. And then he's gonna shift gears and he's gonna say, and with every pain, if you're a Christian with every pain, God gives not only a purpose for it, but he attaches a promise to it. All right, so let's work, let's work through this. First one is this, pain has an expiration date. Verse 18, for I consider... Apostle Paul's gone through all this amazing stuff about there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ and how he's adopted you into the family through repentance and faith in Christ. And then he gets to verse 18 and he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's going, we got a present hurt, but he said we got something in the future that is not even worth comparing with the pain we're going through right now. In other words, Paul does not have an overrealized eschatology. He's like, he understands that he does not live in heaven and you don't live in heaven right now. 
Generally speaking, to kind of give you some categories, when you see pain and suffering in the Bible and it's all over it, both by example and admonition, you probably can put it down into about three general, basic, large group categories just to kind of give you a a grid. First one would be like, we can call it consequential suffering. Consequential suffering is suffering that that I'm going through that are consequences of the actions that I've taken. It's not the devil, it's not even the broken world, it's basically, I made some dumb decisions and those dumb decisions are coming back and Galatians 6 says, you know what, what you sow, you will also reap. What you sow, you will also reap. So if, I, uh, if I'm going 80 miles an hour in a 55 mile an hour zone and I get pulled over and they take my license away, guess what, that ain't the devil, all right? That's your stupidity, that's being dumb, that's a consequence of what you did. If you ignore your marriage year after year after year after year after year after year after year and your marriage dissolves, that is a consequence of all those years of of not doing anything. If you uh, buy stuff you cannot afford year after year after year and you max out the master charge and all this kind of stuff and you're having to pay 18% interest and all this kind of stuff, that is a consequence of action. So that's kind of part of it. It's part of it. A second category is not just consequential suffering, but it's also, let's just call it Christian suffering. Christian suffering in the Bible is suffering that you would not have had to go through if you were not a follower of Jesus. It's what you would have bypassed, but since you're a follower of Jesus, you get some pushback. First Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is among you. In other words, don't be shocked. Don't be shocked. It's part of being a Christian. Paul tells the young pastor, he says, listen, everybody who lives godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said it this way. He says, blessed are you, Matthew chapter five, verse 11. Blessed are you when men say all kinds of evil about you falsely, it needs to be false, right? On account of me, for such were your fathers before you, such were the prophets before you. In other words, it's just kind of part and parcel. Sometimes if you're a Christ follower, I mean, Jesus put it this way. He said, listen, if they called me, if they called me Beelzebub, or if they called him the devil, listen, a, a servant is not above his master. If they called me the devil, they're not going to throw you a birthday party. So part of it is that. Matter of fact, one of our missionaries in Asia wrote this. He said uh, he was talking with a brother who was working in a neighboring district where he was working, and he and some fellow, a fellow church planner, they had been run out of town about three years ago. They had started four churches, but some radical Hindu guys had followed them and, and began to beat them with sticks and then got the police involved and they paraded them around the village while beating them with sticks. They said of those four churches, only three believers did not backslide, but now they have seen 10 or so churches start in those same villages and surrounding areas. And just recently, some church members led three families uh, to Christ and they're about to start another church. So it's kind of true what they said is they said the, the seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. When you look back at the church that's being written to right here, depending on how you date it, the person in charge is either a guy named Nero or Domitian. Nero was whacked out crazy. He was and he hated Christians. Historical books have where he would take Christians He would put them on the end of a stick, prop them up, light them on fire, just to have entertainment and lighting for his parties, okay? So that is Christian persecution. It's happening all over the world. But then the one that it kind of refers to more in this text is what we're just gonna call common, common suffering, common suffering. Look at verse 19. 
For the creation waits, he's going to personify creation. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So here's, you're like, man, that is, what is he talking about there? Here's basically in a nutshell what those three verses say. It's referring to the fact that when God created the world, he said it was good, but when Genesis chapter three happened, the whole thing fractured. It fractured everything in our world. That's why theologically, the world does not work right. From weather systems down to the cellular level, from cancer to criticism, slander to sickness, the problem the Bible teaches that is behind the problem is the sin problem. We've got a fallen world, we also choose to sin, and then other people actually sin against us. Everybody in here at some point in small things or in enormous things, you have been sinned against. Sometimes people will say, why doesn't God just get rid of all the sin? To get rid of all the sin, you've gotta get rid of all the sinners. None of us would be here. And when you look at what God does is sometimes God does miraculously intervene. When you walk with the Lord a long enough time, you will see things that just don't make sense. You're like, there's no way that could have happened unless the Lord did it. The Lord brought her home. The Lord healed that. The doctor can't explain it. This person came back. Whatever that is, you will see that sometimes God does do that. But listen to me. Normally, the normal pattern, the normal pattern, I know there's some mystery. The normal pattern then is a broken creation acts broken. And God gets glorified when his people do one of two things or both of these things. Number one is they minister to the hurting people in a broken world in hope. There's a distinct difference. I know the church in the U.S. gets a lot of grief today and a lot of it is justified. A lot of it is deserved. But when you peel back some of the narrative, there's some distinct differences in the church and your average person out there. For example... There's like twice as much, twice as many believers adopt as people that have nothing to do with Christ. About twice or more than that do foster care than are unbelievers. About double the amount of generosity is given toward poverty and people with great need from Christians than non-Christians. Marriages survive at about a 35% greater clip if they are practicing believers than those that that, that do not. So part of it is that. But part of it also is, even in the midst of the hell going on in your life, part of the way, and this, I know it hurts because it hurts to say it. It hurts to say it. I know it's true. I'm not even saying it's going to be super comforting in and of itself. But what you can do is to understand that God uses our suffering redemptively for his glory and for your good. For his glory, there are some things that God can demonstrate about himself to a watching world through our pain better than any other way. It's just true. We think people are impressed in our neighborhood when we win the lottery and we drive a Cadillac and everything's cotton candy. People do not sit up and take notice typically for that. What they do is when, you know what, when she walks out or when you do have the miscarriage or when these bad things happen and you still love the Lord, they're like, you know what, I don't know how she does that. I don't know how he's walking through that. And sometimes it's also for our good. 
And all of us would admit, all of us would admit at some point, you know, there's some things that God had to teach me through the pain that I was not going to listen to any other way. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. It's a megaphone. It's like I'm talking, 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 raising my voice, still not paying attention. Pay attention, Bruce! And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get your attention is what he's saying. And so when you look at a text like this, what do I do with it? He's not saying, listen to me, he's not saying pain's not real. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the pain in this present world is very real. It's just not meaningless, and it is momentary. It doesn't last forever. He says there's something that is so awesome that is coming that the worst pain you experience now, he says, the quote is, it's not worth comparing. Okay, this always reminds me of a song. Remember, you all remember a song called How He Loves by David Crowder? I'll raise your hand if you remember that song. Just a handful, Okay. You guys need to download it. No, there's another version that's kind of weird, sloppy wet kiss, but there's an there's a there's a unforeseen kiss version and Crowder. It's like turn it up loud, it's really good. And years ago, we used to do that song, and if you weren't here 10 or 12 years ago, and we were kind of trying to, you know, we didn't go we hadn't gone multi-site yet, so we just were adding services and we had a Sunday evening service, if I remember correctly as we were trying to also marry the music. The music was still kind of different, and so we were kind of bringing them together. All that being said. We did, how, we did How He Loves. And I think it was, might have been cardboard testimony when you people come up and it's like, you know what, uh, this happened, but then here's how God redeemed it. So I know that during the time of response, I've got to be careful about singing because I can't sing very good at all, all right? I really, I don't know a tenor from a baritone to whatever. I just, I don't know. I don't know. As a matter of fact, a lot of times I'm hoarse because when I'm singing, I don't sing the note like my voice is supposed to do. I'll sing like Chris Tomlin or something way up here trying to hit that note. And so I get up here and already raspy. All that being said, I, I, I know to kind of be careful. But this particular night, how he loves, because there's this one section in there that's like this. And he is jealous for me. Love like a hurricane. I am a tree. I know it's, I know it's super poetic and I'm like the least poetic guy, but Go with me. I am, I, and I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy when all of a sudden I am unaware, and this is the phrase right out of Romans 8, I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory. And I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affection for me. So anyway, response time is going and people are getting free. I am singing my guts out, but I know it's not on because I can hear if these front fills, like right now I can hear myself and I couldn't hear myself, so I'm like, go for it. And I was just, he is jealous for me. I mean, I was, I was going for it, but I didn't care. You couldn't hear. So I get home at night and I open the door. I can still remember it. I go in the garage, open the door. I think probably at that point he was, uh, I don't know, he's over at T.C. Robertson. So he was, I don't know, he was 16 years old, something like that, 17 years old. Our youngest son just look at He opens the door. He never opens the door for me. He opens the door as I'm walking in. Here's the girl. And he's like, he's just like a Cheshire cat that had caught something. He's like, I was like, what? And then Lori behind him is like, don't tell him. Don't tell him. So at that point, it's like, tell me, tell me. And they had left the mic on during the webcast. And so on the webcast, my out of... I mean, that sound guy was awesome. He didn't work here anymore, but he was like an awesome, awesome, awesome deal. And I was like singing this, like, he is jealous for him. And it's like, but the whole idea is what the song is saying is those afflictions that are very real, when you 
line them up against what God has ready for you, it's like not even worth comparing. If you can't understand that analogy, ladies, I know you can understand this next one. Look at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so he compares the journey in this life to the process of childbirth. In other words, there is temporary pain, long-term joy. Mamas, what they're saying to you as a mom is like, it hurts bad, but especially if you went and got another one, guess what? You're like, you know what? Worth it. Worth it. I don't know, if you've never been in, if you've never been in a, like around childbirth, it's crazy. It's crazy. Especially if you didn't grow up around it at all. No sisters, no nothing. And so there I am and Lori and I have been married a couple years. She gets pregnant with our firstborn. Man, it just starts changing. About month four, man, she started having morning sickness. And there's some stuff that came out of her mouth I've never seen in the history of the world before. I'm like, wow, that's that's not, not words. I'm talking about projectiles. I'm like, you, she was going down Fort Worth Expressway one time at a little Dodge Omni, and she couldn't get off because nobody, nobody would let her off to exit because she was getting sick, and it's like, whoom, all over the dash. She's like, baby, you got to come and pick me up, and I hose that thing out at the car wash, that whole thing. I just like, this is, I was like, that thing smelled for months. And then, then you get those contractions. I know for a long time I used to call them Briggs and Stratton. I got those Briggs and Stratton. It's like, it's Braxton Hicks, all right? It's not Briggs and Stratton, it's Braxton Hicks. But a contraction is like a fake, it's, it's a real pain, but it's not time to have a baby yet. I was like, man, that is incredibly intense. And then it really happens. And the contractions start and the water breaks and man, it's everything is going. If you've never been around it, it's unbelievable. And then you get to the hospital and there's this deal, I think in the Hebrew it's called epidural and they give you an epidural and it's like, it's like, she needs one too. Just kidding. It's like, but you know, and, and they get this epidural and, uh, and then the, the actual, I mean, my wife is five, five, Tyler weighed almost nine pounds, nine pounds. Brother was a big baby. And when they come in, I mean, think about it. I know, I've never seen babies except the nice little ones that have been cleaned off and always, oh, what a cute little baby. Man, but those people come in there in that NASCAR outfit, I mean, they got like a shield on and they got the uniforms on and just, I mean, it's, it's like on and then that baby comes out and I'm just gonna tell you, man, brand new babies, crazy looking, got stuff all over them and they're putting that little thing to get the snot out and it's, you know, sucking their nose and it's like, man, and Tyler, don't tell him this, but... Man, brother looked like E.T. is what he looked like. He did. His head was like a cone because they had to like get, get, anyway, you don't want to know. But I'm just saying all that happened. And then, and then, then, I mean, it's, it is. And, and then they're like, but then they, they hand them to you. They clean him off and they hand them to you. And then Lori held him. And all that pain, I'm talking about like instantaneous, an hour before. Ah! And it's like, the love toward this baby. And then she's like, and it's like firstborn. Same thing with the second one. You're like, I don't know if I can love anything more than this. And then they're like, then it's time to go. <laughs> they're not going to send you home with this baby. 
It's like, are you going to come with us? Because I don't even know how to put a car seat in. So you got to help us. But you're sitting there, but then you go home and you're like, you don't th- I can't love anything more than this. You're like, well, are you supposed to love your wife more? Yeah, but it's different. I mean, it's like your baby. It's like I'm holding. It's like unbelievable. My question would be this. What if you thought, what if you knew that God looked at you like that? Wouldn't it make a difference if in spite of the pain, in spite of the agony, you know what? God looks at me just like that. God loves me. He's not backing away from me. He's actually holding me in this time. Would that not make a difference? Because the Bible says, you know what? Mourning is for now. Joy will come in the, in the what? In the, in the morning. And he just goes on on this, verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit. First fruits are like the first in the long line of other stuff. Like when, when he says bring the first fruits to God, it's like bring the first part of your income, but there's like a whole bunch left. And here he's saying the first fruits of the spirit. It's like God gave you some on the front end. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. He's like, you think that's a lot? You think that kind of love that you're experiencing is a lot? That kind of joy, that kind of peace? That's just like a, that's just like a taster. You got a lot more where that comes from. He says, but we groan inwardly, that's pain, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, let me just do two of those. Some of you are like, wait a minute, I was here last week. And Bruce, you told us that we were adopted as sons and daughters, that when we placed our faith in Christ, we are adopted immediately. Nobody can take us away from God and all that kind of great stuff. And here it says we're waiting to be adopted as sons. And what you're going to see in the Bible is just a whole lot of already and not yet. Already it's done, but it's not totally finished. Your adoption is complete. Justification that this has happened, it cannot change if you're in Christ. But there's still some stuff that's left, and he actually gives us an example. It says physically, he says what? The redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. There's a physical redemption coming, and our bodies literally groan for it. If you're in your 20s, this verse is like, eh, whatever. That's because you're still flexible and you get out of bed with no Advil and you just like feel awesome. I'm going to go bike 10 miles or whatever. That's why, we, that's why we hate you, all right? But I'm just, the rest of us, once you hit like your 40s, when it says your body groans inwardly, that's actually a physical deal. It's like, man, stuff is just like falling apart and I hurt for no reason. I don't even have to work out to start hurting. He's like, you know what? Guess what? There's going to be a time where you not only get to go back to where you were as a 20-year-old, it's even better. You're like, what is that even looking like? That's a different sermon, but if you want a prototype, look at Jesus' uh, resurrection. All right, look at that. And you and I can kind of dream and think about that, and I'm pretty sure in heaven God has rewired things. So if like if you eat cauliflower, you know, you get fat, and if you eat ice cream, you get skinny. I'm just saying that's, that's kind of the way that deal works. All right, that's going to be good. It's going to be good. Because here's the way he says, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope is what, that is seen. That's not even hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it in patience. So here's what that means. When you think about all this stuff, this is not pie in the sky. This is not... Man, I hope my Red Raiders make a big run in March Madness. Kind of like I hope it happens, but I'm not sure it's going to happen. The Bible word for hope is the idea, I know it's going to happen. It is going to happen. I just don't know when it's going to happen. But knowing that it is on the horizon, I'm going to orient my life in such a way 
that it surrounds and reflects the fact that I know God's going to get this done. And so one of them is like, it has an expiration date. And the other one is God has a purpose and a promise. Look at verse 26. Likewise, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Think pain, think difficulty, think trial. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us, for us, with groanings too deep for words. Verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes. This is unbelievable. The Spirit intercedes for the saints. Again, saints, if you're Episcopal or Catholic or whatever the deal is, saint in the Bible is just a Christian, all right? It's not a, it's not a ladder that you walk up. It's actually what Jesus has done, all right? Jesus went up the ladder. Jesus performs based on Jesus' performance, all right? A saint is the idea of, you know what? This person has come to faith in Christ and Jesus' righteousness has been put to their account. That's what a saint is. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, by the way, this puts a whole different view of last week when you're talking about we cry out, Abba, Father. This is not like sitting on your dad's lap like, oh, it's so great and warm and fuzzy and snuggy. That's not what it is. That whole cry out is like, God, help me. She left after 20 years of marriage. I don't even know what to say. God, I wasn't supposed to get cancer at 46. That's what that says. You're like, what do you get out of that passage? Look what it says. There's at least, there's about 10 truths, but let me give you two. One of them is that actually, when it says the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, the Holy Spirit knows what you're feeling and is interceding. And actually, next week, you'll see that actually Jesus intercedes for you. Let me plant this seed. There's going to be places in our lives and in your life where it is beyond your capacity to stay up under it. It's not every day. It's not every week. But there are times when the weight is too heavy for you. And if you try to, that's why the Bible says in Galatians, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. The burden is not your normal backpack that you're supposed to be able to carry. It's that crushing weight that is unusual in your life. And it says, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Because you need to understand you have a limitation. You have a capacity that God has made you with. And sometimes life is more than what you can handle. It's like, like I drive, a, like a trucks have capacity. You have a capacity of, okay, this is the capacity for this truck. This is, as much, this is the truckload capacity. Like I drive the greatest truck in the world, an F-150, okay? Greatest truck ever known to man. I won't argue that point. Those of you that drive Rams, it's because you watch Yellowstone. That's all. Okay, that's just us talking. Okay, but, but, but the capacity on that thing is 3,300, 3,300 pounds, 3,300 pounds. In other words, if you go beyond that level, bad news. What we have to learn oftentimes is, guess what? There's some times when it says, it says the spirit will pray according to the will of God. The will of God is always to glorify the son. But even as a Christian, aren't you sometimes confused on even what that is? It's like, God, does it glorify you more if we move to Minnesota or if we stay in Western Carolina? Does it glorify you more if the prodigal comes home right now or we just, or we just pray for God, the process, what, what happens? But what he says is he moves towards you, which is amazing. Here's one of the most precious verses you need to jot down. Psalm 34, I think it's 18, says this. 
God is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in the spirit. God is near to the brokenhearted. Near to the brokenhearted means that when you're going through that trial, that difficulty, God rolls up his sleeves and moves towards you, not away from you. And oftentimes it feels the opposite. And so you don't get your theology in the midst of the trial, you get it now as you head into the trial. And that's the context of the most famous verse for Christians in the Bible, verse 28. And we know, we know that for those who love God, let's just stop there. For those who love God, it's not talking about, hey, I'm having a good love God day. I'm having, it's talking about a Christian. You're a Christ follower. If there's been a time when you turn from your sin and turn to Christ, been adopted into God's family, you, that's, it's like you love God. You love God. Not perfect, perfectly, but increasingly. And so this promise that we're about to look at, you've got to understand this is either good news or bad news. It's like if you visit the hospital, is that good or bad? It kind of depends on what floor you go to. If you go to oncology, bad news. If you go to labor and delivery, you're probably carrying balloons and it's an awesome day. And so this says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together. So where we get a word synergy from. He takes it, works it together for good. For those who are called according, those who are called according to his purpose. And we'll get to that in just a second. Let me just be clear. This is not saying that all things are good. That's, that's not Bible, all right? That's Lion King. That's what that is. That's Akuna Matata. That's not what the Bible's teaching. It's not, it's not teaching that the ark of everything, there's a silver lining around every cloud and just wait long enough and you'll, that's not what it's saying. It's not. It's saying that God is good. It's saying that God, God's the subject of all of this whole thing. God will work it together for good, that God is so sovereign, he can take what is bad and sorry and wicked, and in the end result, what he'll do is he'll use it for the glory of God and for your good. And here's what we, let's just admit this. My, my goal, my, one of my jobs, I feel, is to help you ask honest questions in church. Just ask honest questions. Because sometimes people will say, you need to recognize that sometimes you see that reason here and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you can see it, and that's amazing. I mean, you see something tragic happen. I mean, I, you just name it. Uh, I was uh, passed over for, for a promotion, and it hurt me so bad, and it threw me into a spiral, but I look back, and five years down the road, I could see that I was going down the wrong road with the wrong crowd, and if I'd have gotten that promotion, I would have lost my family, and man, we're doing so well, and you can see it, and that's great when you can see it. I had a guy one time, and he was cheating on his wife, and he got in a car wreck, and he almost died, and he came into my office, and he threw the pictures of the car down that was totaled, and yet he survived. He's like, God used this to get my attention. I'm like, yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. He's like, disciple me. Would you, would you disciple me? So there's great stories where it's not saying the car wreck is good. What he's saying is that God can take that and actually turn it around in such a way as God gets the glory, and it actually is good for you. So here's, here, we've got to spend a couple minutes on these verses, but understand the big picture. Here's the one that people freak out on these verses. Let me explain them, and then we'll bring it back to what the text is about, what the context is about. Verse 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, for those whom he foreknew, four, remember, four is coming right after verse 28. He's like, listen, Christian, God is going to, you love God? God is going to take this thing and work it out. Why? What would be an illustration of that? For 
those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, don't freak out, we'll come back to that, to be conformed to the image of his son. Just a real quick observation. What is the predestination pointing toward? For the Christian to be conformed to the image of his son. I want you to look like Jesus. I want you to love like Jesus. I want you to love what he loved, hate what he hates. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called. This is called the chain of salvation. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And the he in there, it's all about what God did. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All right, three or four or five minutes. Again, you've got plenty of coffee. Let's have, a little, let's, let's have a little theological discussion here. The context of this is not to start an argument. Paul's not trying to start an argument about Calvinism or Arminianism. That's not what he's doing. The context, obviously, is what God is doing in the midst of trials and suffering. Realize this is a difficult doctrine. There's people a lot smarter than us that, that believe the Bible, and the tension is basically this. If you're new to this deal, here's the tension you see in the Bible. And there's a very small number of truths in the Bible that are very hard to reconcile that are both taught, and you're like, man, what do I do with that? What do I do with that? And there's a very small number of those. And, I think it's Deuteronomy 29 says what? The secret things belong to the Lord. They're called mysteries. There's like a handful that's like, I can't figure that out. This would be one of them. So here's what typically happens is you've got a tension between the sovereignty of Almighty God, which is 100% true, and then you've also got the free will of man or the choice of man. So here's what typically happens, and then let me give you an example, and let me try to at least give you biblical wisdom, and some of you are like, well, that's not enough, and you'll write me a letter, and I'll send you the same thing. So just understand this. Because if you, the people on one side bring their 10 verses out, the people on the other side, they bring their 10 verses out, and they try to pit them together against one another. And I would say what Spurgeon said Spurgeon actually said, those are not enemies, they're friends. The free will of man and the sovereignty of almighty God in the whole salvation process. So here's an example. What I mean by this is Jesus stands on a grassy hill in Galilee and says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest, Matthew 11. A couple of times Jesus also stands out, calls out to massive crowds and he would say, whosoever will, whosoever will may come. Whosoever will may come. Now, after he said that, whosoever will may come, did he then whisper to his disciples, hey, only if I predestine you, only if you're one of the elect? Because <laughs> if you're not, you're up a creek. Okay. I don't think so. I think what he said is whosoever, whosoever, will, whosoever will may come. On the other hand, some of you are like, well, wait a minute, over in Ephesians chapter 1, it says that God chose you before the foundation of the world. You're like, which one's true? And I would say both are true. Both are true. You're like, can you explain that more? I can't, not really. Here's what I would simply say. Don't allow somebody to intimidate you into thinking they have a higher view of God simply because they focus on certain portions of Scripture at the expense of others. Above all, do not get caught up in subscribing to a theological system that has to put scaffolding around the Bible and then puts God in a box. There are some things that God has not fully explained there are tensions between some truths that he has shown us. You're like, well, can you explain it more? I can't explain it a whole lot more. Here's what I would say to this. The context of this is both 
suffering that has an expiration date. God has a promise that he's leaning in while you're going through this. And the basic gist of 29 and 30 is, listen, what God started, what God started, God is going to complete. What God started in your life, he's not fumbled the ball. He's not gone on vacation. He's not asleep at the wheel. He sees what you're doing and whether you can ever understand it on this earth or not, there is an expiration date, there is a purpose, and there is a promise. You're like, well, how do you know? How do you know? I would say this, because two verses later, two verses later, because remember, there were no chapter divisions, there were no numbers there. Those were put there later for you and I to find our way around God's word. But two verses later, in verse 32, it says this, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all thanks? In other words, if you want to see God's love for you, don't focus on the circumstances, focus on the cross. Because wouldn't you imagine that if 2,000 years ago, if you'd never read the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and you were to go back 2,000 years ago on a hill outside of Jerusalem called Golgotha, and you were to see the Son of Man being crucified, first flogged, then beaten, then spit upon, then disrespected, then insulted, and then raised up naked between heaven and earth, between two thieves, the person you had followed for three years, you'd put your hopes that he's going to be the king, and then he gets crucified right there. Wouldn't you have some questions? I don't see, you have some questions. You're like, God, I thought you said you were sovereign. He's like, I am. God, I thought you said you loved your son. I do. But what you see is it's like just because you can't see, they didn't, in their case, I mean, their case, they, they didn't even know. I mean, they didn't, they didn't know, they didn't know Sunday morning was coming. God was, it was not out of control at, at all. It was under God's complete control, and what he's trying to show them is, listen, in suffering, you can feel like you are barely holding on, barely holding on. Just be assured that he is holding on to you, and what God started, God will finish. And so here's, here's my question to you is this. If Jesus appeared to you in your trial, in your difficulty, whatever that pain is that you have, or maybe even it's pain for somebody else. But if Jesus were to appear to you and look at you and say, listen to me, this is gonna turn out for the glory of God. This is gonna, you, don't, you can't see it now, but it's gonna turn out for the glory of God. In the meantime, I am with you in this trial. I love you like you won't believe. As a matter of fact, I am praying for you every day. If you could hear me, I am just interceding on your behalf. And the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, they're interceding on your behalf as well. And I put some brothers and sisters around you so they can come up there because your burden sometimes gets too heavy, and that time is now. And all you got to do is cry out to God. And even if your prayer is a dumb prayer, guess what? I'm going to rearrange that prayer so that prayer is perfectly, perfectly delivered up to God. Would that make a difference? Yeah, it would make a difference. It'd make all the difference. And so at the start of the service, what, what are we seeing? Me and mine, I haven't been here. You might have been getting coffee in the lobby and come in late. But it's a song we've sung before. It's like the battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. And it's like I'm on my knees. My hands are lifted high. You know what that is? That's a picture of both submission and dependence. Submission, I'm on my knees. You are submitting. God, whatever you want. But it's also, it's also humility. God, I need some help. Hold me. That's what that is. So here's what, my, here's what we're going to finish today. Because there's so many times. I told you the Galatians verse 
the half-brother of Jesus said, listen, no. Not only do you have not because you ask not, but when you ask, you ask with the wrong motives. But then later on, it says, pray for one another. Pray for one another so that you can be healed. Pray for one another so that you can be healed. Peter would say this, cast all your anxiety upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. 